Well, it's a privilege and pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, and you want to turn to First Peter, chapter five. And as you turn there, um, in the Sunday school hour, I uh, I was able to talk a little bit about Christian education from Deuteronomy six and a vision of sort of holistic, whole life, immersive. Christian education, the way that the Godward life is handed down from generation to generation. And before I dive into the text here, I wanted to extend a little invitation. Uh, I should have done it in the Sunday school, but I'll do it here. Um, this fall, part of, part of the way that we want to hand down the Godward life from generation to generation is with events. And so we've got a new gathering at Bethlehem in Minneapolis, September 30th and October 1st, called Godward Life. You can Look at it, godwardlife.com. It's a partnership between Bethlehem College and Seminary and the teachers from Desiring God, John Piper. All of us will be doing some up-close and personal interactive workshops as well as some, some messages on the pleasure, God's greatest pleasures. And, uh, and for you guys, uh, it actually may be a, a doubly special thing given your uh, investment and support for the Brunos in Hawaii and the Davis on their way to Cameroon and Udine and the team there. Um, because you guys are actively engaged in supporting these ministries that are seeking to spread a passion for God's supremacy. And uh, this event would be a chance for you to come receive the education that you're giving, if that makes sense. You're, you're supporting, praying, and funding the shaping and formation of people across the world. And our hope for an event like this is for people to come and experience it for themselves, to see what we do in classrooms as we seek to pass on the Godward life. So godwardlife.com, you can look that up. So here we are in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now I want to talk a little bit about what, what do you nay, uh, and Chris and us in Minneapolis, what we do, what we're training for when we engage in seminary training. So read with me there in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in this passage, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to shepherd. That's a timely word, both because of these other efforts, what I do for a living in training men for ministry, training pastors to uh, shepherd. At our seminary, we say we want to um, graduate mature men, mature leaders who are ready to shepherd God's people with biblical clarity and Christ-exalting affection for the rest of their lives. That's the aim. That's what we're after. If we're successful, guys graduate from our apprenticeship program, our seminary, ready to shepherd. So we want to talk about shepherding. But it's timely for you because, as Daniel told me whenever we were working this out, you have a number of pastors who are going to be, Lord willing, ordained here after the service, and so it's good to reflect on what, what are you ordaining them to do? What, what do they do? And so as we look here, there are three main exhortations in the passage addressed to three different groups. Did you see them? 
Number one, elders shepherd God's flock. Number two, young people, or as they say in the South, youngins, be subject to the elders. And number three, everyone, or as they say in the South, all y'all, be humble. So this passage builds on the previous passage, which you haven't been in, so let me uh, summarize it. We know that it builds on it because of the word so there in verse 1. So, therefore, connects this to what comes before. And the previous passage had explored Peter's vision of Christian suffering. Suffering, he says, is a refining fire. It separates the gold from the dross. And this separation and judgment, Peter says, begins with the household of God. So it's no surprise if judgment begins with the household of God that Peter then turns to address the household of God. What does the household of God need to do? What's more, there's a, there's a really clear link between 1 Peter 4 and 1 Peter 5. Notice that Peter refers to himself in the passage, right? He, he reminds him of who he is. He draws attention to, to sort of three aspects of his life and ministry as a way of, of sort of giving his exhortations weight. Right? He, wants, he, wants them, he wants his exhortations, those three, to leave an impact. Um, so you guys familiar with the, uh, the movie um, Cool Runnings? Anybody know the movie Cool Runnings? A bunch of people are going, nope. It's all right. You can go Friday Family Fun Night. You guys can go check that one out. But in the, in the movie, it's a, uh, it's a movie about the Jamaican bobsled team. So there was a Jamaican bobsled team. And uh, at one point, one of the uh, Jamaicans um, says that he's the greatest push cart driver in all of Jamaica. And so, and he says to his coach, you dig where I'm coming from? I'm the greatest push cart driver. I should be the driver of the bobsled. And the coach, who is an Olympic champion, says, yeah, I dig where you're coming from. Now you dig where I'm coming from. I'm coming from two gold medals. I'm coming from nine world records in both the two and four men events. I'm coming from 10 years of intense competition with the best athletes in the world. And then Sanka says, that's a heck of a place to be coming from. And so in this passage, Peter's saying, let me tell you where I'm coming from. Okay, let me tell you where I'm coming from as I try to give these exhortations some weight. First, he says, I'm an elder too. I, Peter says, I'm not calling you to a task that I don't share. I get the burdens, Peter says, of pastoral ministry because I'm a fellow elder. But then he goes on, he says, not only am I an elder, I'm a witness of Christ's suffering. And that likely refers to the fact that Peter was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. He was with him. Uh, or it could refer, probably by extension, to the way that he testifies and preaches about Christ's sufferings just the way that all Christians do. And then finally, he says, I'm a partaker in the glory to be revealed. So as Peter exhorts these elders, that's where he's coming from. I'm an elder. I'm testifying to the sufferings of Christ. I'm a witness of them and I am a partaker in the glory to be revealed. And that, that, that's a consistent pattern right there in the Bible, right? So in, in chapter 4, verse 13, if you look just back up there, it says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. That's the pattern, right? Uh, suffering leads to glory. Cross leads to crown. There's no other way to get there and so Peter, as an elder in God's church, as a witness for Christ's sufferings, and as one who will share in the coming glory and grace when Jesus returns, he says, I have a word for you guys, an exhortation for the leaders and the rest in God's house. And so I want to just walk through these in terms of the what, 
the how and the why of pastoral ministry. So what's the task? Simple. Shepherd. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. Elders are called to pastor. That's why we call them pastor. I don't know. I assume that that's true here, that the terms elder and pastor, at least in my church, are interchangeable terms. It's not that there's elders and pastors. Those are the same office. So what does it mean to shepherd? Well, you know, shepherds care for sheep. Shepherds lead the the flock and they feed the flock. They lead the flock to green pastures and still waters, and they guard and protect the flock from bears and wolves and lions and thieves. They're attentive to the health and the safety of their sheep. Like if a sheep begins to look sickly, shepherds examine the diet. If the sheep come down with a disease, shepherds bring medicine to heal. If a sheep falls in a crack in the earth, A shepherd pulls him out and sets him back on the right path. If a lion attacks, a shepherd grabs his rod and his staff and uses it to defend his flock, even at great cost to himself. That's what shepherds do. But perhaps like we can even dig a little deeper to how he thinks about shepherding. We even heard this in the confession of sin. Note that clarifying phrase there. So shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Remember, Daniel mentioned shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Um, So ask yourself this question. What's the difference between sight and oversight? What's the difference between sight and oversight? Well, oversight includes sight, like sight's in the word. Like you can't exercise oversight if you can't clearly see and understand what's going on. But oversight is actually more than just seeing. It's more than just sight. Oversight is sight plus responsibility to act. You really get this. And, and actually, maybe to broaden this out, this is true of overseers in the church, but it's actually true of all kinds of oversight. Like if you're a boss, if you're a parent, if you're a husband, if you have some kind of role of leadership and that involves oversight, this is relevant for you as well. Oversight is sight plus responsibility to act. It means that you, that you see, and when you see, you're responsible to do something about it. And notice that Peter's specific. He says, it's not just shepherd the flock, it's shepherd the flock of God that's among you. So pastors here are called to shepherd their people, not other people's people, not other shepherd's sheep, these sheep. And this is really important in an age of sort of interconnectedness and social media because it's easy to miss the importance. It's easy for pastors to be concerned about the dangers to the health of flocks over there, other people's other, other shepherd sheep, on the other side of town, other side of the country, other context, it's easy for pastors to think, those are the dangers I have to worry about, is those ones out there, as opposed to finding the ones here. So it's, it's actually possible in this day and age to build a flock around pointing out dangers to other people's flocks. Like you can, you can gather people to talk about all the sins that other people deal with, as opposed to the sins that these people deal with. And that's not faithful. 
Wise and faithful shepherds are attentive to the needs, the cares, the issues, the problems, the dangers, the temptations, and the tendencies of the flock that is among them. So, if oversight is sight plus responsibility to act, this means that there are two main ways you can get it wrong. There's two different ways pastors can fail. On the first, first pastors can fail to see clearly. They can miss something. They, they didn't recognize that there was a disease spreading in their flock. They, they didn't see that there was a pack of wolves coming over that hill. They didn't see that the water was polluted. And so failure to see, failure to discern is a failure to shepherd well. But second, elders could also fail to act. Like maybe they do see the disease, but they don't wisely apply the medicine. Maybe they do see the wolves, but they run away in fear. Maybe they do see the polluted water, but they don't move the flock to better pastures. So failure to act is also a failure to shepherd well. And so I, I, highly, I highlight those two potential failures mainly so that you know two good ways to pray for your pastors. You should pray that your pastors would see clearly what they need to see about this church, not other churches, this church. That they would know the, the needs and the dangers and the tendencies and the temptations of the people in this congregation, in this city, at this time in history. Because you don't want a pastor who's the sort of shepherd who runs around with a fire extinguisher in the middle of a flood. There's a little image from Lewis right there, right? You don't want a pastor who's, like a, who's running around with a fire extinguisher in the middle of a flood because he doesn't know, he doesn't see clearly what the problem is. Like if there's a fire in, the church, in a church across the country and a flood in this church, you don't want the fire extinguisher. You want the sandbags. Life rafts. So that's the first thing. You can pray that your pastors would see clearly what they need to see. And then, and then second, you can pray that having seen clearly what they need to see about this people, that they would have the courage and the compassion to act with wisdom to do what is best for you. Like once you've seen what needs to be seen, once, once they've seen it, what needs to be said? Like when they've seen what needs to be seen, well, what needs to be said? What needs to be done? Who needs to do it? And so pray that they would have the heart and the nerve to say it and to do it well. And let me just insert a little parenthesis here about the importance of a plurality of elders. Sounds like you guys have one of those. That's why we're, you're going to be appointing a few new ones. A plurality of, of elders in order to shepherd. Why, why is that so important? Peter says here, I exhort the elders. It's plural. There's, there's a bunch of these guys. When you have a plurality of elders, you can see more and act better. You can see more and you can act better. Well, why? No single shepherd can pay attention to all of the dangers, all the macro dangers and micro dangers. No, no elder has 360-degree vision, but a team can. Like some, some shepherds, so in other words, you get in your head, some shepherds can be scanning the horizon to the east, and others are scanning the horizon 
to the west. Some are directing their attention to distant threats, to that storm that's coming in, the pack of wolves settling in the valley. And then others are directing their attention inward to how's the grass? What's the condition of the pasture? How's that individual sheep doing? And so when you have elders, plural, and when they're shepherding the flock of God among them, plural, they're able to see more and act with greater wisdom, greater insight, greater clarity than if they only saw and acted alone. So we can summarize the task of pastoring in a variety of ways. Elders lead the flock and feed the flock. They guide the flock and they guard the flock. They teach God's word and they rule or govern God's house. They provide for the spiritual needs of God's people and they protect God's people from threats outside and inside. Elders put God's house in order. They're like the immune system for the body of Christ. They regulate the body's health and they guard it from disease. And so you could boil all of that down and say it something like this. This is how I'd say it in one sentence. Elders, pastors are called to oversee and care for God's flock by teaching the word of God with his authority, by guarding the doctrine and worship of the church and organizing and mobilizing the church for its mission. Teach the word of God with authority, guard the doctrine and the worship of the church, and organize and mobilize the church for its mission. That's the task. That's the what of pastoral ministry. Now, how? There's a how. Because Peter says it's not just enough to do it. You have to do it in a certain way. Then he gives three pairs of contrast. See if you see those, you see those three pairs of contrast there? Uh, we're looking here in verse, um, beginning of verse 2. So on the one hand... Um, not under compulsion, but willingly, okay? So no one should ever pastor with a gun to his head. Like if you have to say to a guy, do this or else, he shouldn't do it. There must be a willingness and an intentionality in the heart of the pastor for the task. Um, C.S. Lewis once wrote that a vocation, when we talk about a vocation, a calling, there's a double-edged character to a vocation. It's both a duty and a desire. Like, duty is at times necessary. Like, this is a hard task. The pastoral task is a weighty one, and there are times when a faithful pastor needs the Holy Spirit to strengthen his own soul, to overcome the weakness of his flesh in order to carry out his calling. Like, duty has its place, but desire must be there. Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Aspiration and desire matter. Duty can get you through a hard day. You know this in your own jobs, right? Duty can get you through a hard day, maybe even a hard week, even a hard season. But long-term faithful ministry cannot run on duty alone. There must be desire and a willing service beneath it. So that's number one on the how. Then more than that, he says, number two, how do you do it? Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So you shouldn't pastor for the money. Now, pastors should be paid, but they shouldn't pastor for money. And you can see how this one follows from that previous one, right? You can see the connection there. Like if you're shepherding out of compulsion, like right, gun to the head, why stick with it when it gets hard? Why would you keep going you don't really want it, you don't really love it, you're not really willing, but you, it's, it's a job, why would you stick with it when it gets hard? Answer, because they pay you. 
So you do it for shameful gain. Peter knows that someone without the desire to shepherd can be driven to shepherd by duty or enticed to shepherd by money. Those are the those are the two other ways you could get someone to do it. Gun to the head, money in the pocket. And neither motivation, Peter says, is pleasing to God. So the calling of the pastor is to packer eagerly or with heart, literally with heart. Pastor from the heart. Shepherd God's flock from the heart. Not because of greed, but because you love the work. And then finally, what's the how? Not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. So this is important. Pastors do have authority in the church. One way that authority goes wrong is when it becomes domineering. I think Peter probably has the words of Jesus in mind when he wrote this. Remember that passage from Matthew? One of the few other places in the Bible where that word domineering shows up is in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus says this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them. There's the phrase. Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus there contrasts domineering worldly authority with humble service. Peter contrasts domineering authority with being an example to the flock, and you can see how those connect, right? Jesus points to himself as the model of humble service. He came not to be served, but to serve, and then he left us an example that we might follow in his steps. Peter says that in chapter 2, verse 21. So Jesus, as the chief shepherd, is the model of humble service for lesser shepherds, the elders, and elders are models of humble service for the flock. That's how this works. That's how it's done. Willingly, willingly, not with a gun to the head. Eagerly, not out of greed. And humbly, as a Christ-like model for people, not lording it over them or using other people. That's the how of shepherding. There's the what of shepherding, that's the how of shepherding, the why of shepherding. The answer to that is simple, according to the passage, you can see it. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd returns, he will reward you. Money wears out. Earthly honors, they fade, but the crown of glory that Jesus brings never fades So Peter calls these men to shepherd willingly from the heart because Jesus has their heart. Not for shameful gain, because Christ is our gain. And I'm going to say more about that in a minute. Now I want to move from the exhortation to the elders to the exhortation to the congregation, and especially those who are younger, because they have a responsibility too. It's important to get that when the Bible gives people responsibilities, it never just gives them to one side. If there's a relationship, both sides have duties, obligations, and responsibilities. So what's the calling of the congregation? Look there in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Elders lead, feed, teach, govern, guide, and rule the church. And the congregation, who are frequently, though not always, younger than the elders, submit, follow, obey, and are subject to them. 
So in the same way, this is from elsewhere in 1 Peter, all Christians are called to be subject, that's the same word, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's chapter 2, verse 13. Wives are called to submit to their own husbands. It's the same word, chapter 3, verse 1. Servants are called to submit to their masters. Same word, chapter 2, verse 18. So those who are young are especially called to be subject to the elders of God's church. And I, and I draw attention to those other examples of that call so that you can see that there are overlapping authorities here. There are civil authorities like governors and mayors and city councils and things like that. There are family authorities, husbands and fathers. There are vocational authorities, biblical times, masters, we would say bosses. And now there are church authorities, pastors and elders. And we are called as God's people, to obey the appropriate authority in their appropriate sphere in the appropriate way. Right? So there's different overlapping authorities here. But this is important. We, we learn this principle from this passage. Elders don't have absolute authority, even in the church. They are not the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. But they do have real authority in the church, and those under their charge owe them respect, honor, deference, and appropriate obedience for the Lord's sake. And that's true of all, all those authorities. Nobody, nobody is God but God. And therefore, all authority has its limits and its boundaries. So that's the, that's the exhortation then to that second group. And then now to everyone, final exhortation, everyone in the church, old and young, elder, congregant, doesn't matter, what does he say to everybody here? Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So everyone is called to be humble, but humility will take different forms depending on where you are in the community, right? So how do elders show community or humility? Elders show humility by leading and ruling, like doing the task they're called to, and in the way that they lead and rule. How does a congregation show humility? By following the elders' lead and in the way that they follow the elders' lead. So elders show humility by feeding and teaching the Word of God, and a congregation shows humility by eating and receiving the Word of God. Elders show humility by exercising oversight and authority and by the way that they exercise that authority and oversight. And a congregation responds humbly by submitting and obeying the elders and in the way that they submit and obey the elders. Humility is everywhere. It's not just, oh, this group is humble and that group doesn't have to be humble. No, no. Everybody's got to be humble. But the humility will look different depending on the calling and the office and the station that God has given it looks different for different people. And we, and we could, uh, if we were continuing on with the passage, the next passage, humble yourselves, therefore, builds on this, because there's a vertical dimension of humility and a horizontal one. Humble yourselves under God's hand, and then clothe yourselves with humility towards another. So you humble yourself before God. So that's the fundamental humbling, is before God. And then that finds expression in humility towards one another by fulfilling the calling that God has given you in your various roles and relationships. And so then let me bring this all together. And what I want to do to just kind of wrap this up and close this out is give you a little window. Um, there's a number of, probably now a year or so, 
I preach this text for our people. And uh, so I'm going to give you a little window into what happened when I was preparing it, because something happened in the preparation that was really significant for me about how I shepherd my people. It doesn't quite work the same way because you're not my people. But I want you to get a little window into like how and the why and the what of shepherding. So I, I was preparing to preach this sermon, and so I was thinking about my people, and I was going, what do I need to see about my people in order to preach this passage? Like, what are the needs and the concerns and the temptations and the tendencies of my people in St. Paul? And then, once I've seen that, what do I need to say to them or do for them in order to address those needs and concerns and temptations? Like, what? And I, had to, and I need to do it willingly, not under compulsion. I need to do it eagerly, not because they're going to pay me. Humbly, not trying to lord it over them. I want to humble myself under God's hand and under God's word. And then I want to clothe myself with humility toward them and say what God wants me to say. That's the goal. Okay? Every time I get in the pulpit, that's the goal. So one of the things I've learned over the years in preparing to preach and just leadership in general, this is life lesson for everybody right here is to pay attention to my reluctances. just want you to let that land, think about it. Pay attention to my reluctances, to my hesitations, to my checks. So whenever I'm preparing a sermon, there will be times, I'll be sitting there typing away, where I'll have just like a little bit of like, "Mm, I don't know about that in my head. Subtle check about saying what I'm seeing out loud or applying what I'm seeing in a certain way. Like just a little hesitation, just a little intuition that says, I don't know, a little impulse, maybe go a little bit of a different direction. Maybe add a little bit of a qualification. Does that make sense? You probably have experienced that in your life in other ways. Maybe not be preparing sermons, but you know that moment when you're talking to a friend and you think something and before it makes its way out, the little voice goes, hmm, do you sure you want to say that? You know what I'm talking about? We're all, we've all had that reluctance, hesitation thing. Okay. This little kind of rise up. Okay. Here's one of the things I've learned over the years. Pay attention to that. Whenever I've learned that those sorts of moments are of vital importance in preaching and in teaching, and I would just say in leading in general and relationships in general, and I've learned I need to interrogate that reluctance. I need to ask it some questions needs to answer for it, like that intuition and impulse. Where's it coming from, and where do they want me to go? Where's that impulse want to take my sermon or this relationship? So when I was getting ready to preach this passage a year ago, where'd the reluctance show up? So I was preparing, and I'm walking through, and I'm describing the task of the elders, and I kept talking about rule and authority. And every time I would start to write the word, I was so... Um, describing the responsibility of the congregation to submit and obey. So whenever I would write the word rule or govern, I felt an impulse to change it to the word lead. Isn't that interesting? It's like, so I'd be like, I'm, I'm typing on my computer, elders rule, L-E-A-D. I was like, that's not, this thing broken? Um, every time. So the unspoken impulse in me was don't say rule, don't say govern, don't do that. Say the word lead. And this was odd because the word rule actually shows up in the Bible. First Timothy 5 says elders rule, the elder, elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. So I was like, where's that coming from? So I started kind of poking at it. What, what's going on there? 
Because I don't automatically assume it's bad. Like sometimes that little impulse to say, don't do that, is like helping you out, right? Like you're about to mess some stuff up and you need to pay attention to that little reluctance. So why? There may be good reasons, but I want to understand it. So not, not just blindly follow it. So I start pressing in and I start going, ah, oh, I had an intuition that if I said the word rule to my people, some people might not like it. Like if I said, elders rule the flock, I'm standing up there as their elders saying, elders rule the flock, that I thought my people are going to go like that. And so then I had to go, okay, why, why don't they like it? Why wouldn't they like that? I, I intuitively know they probably aren't going to like it. Why? So I start pressing. There are a lot of answers to that question. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Number one, because they're Americans. <laughs> right? We're modern Americans in an egalitarian culture that is allergic to notions of rule and authority. And they bristle at all talk of obedience to other human beings. Ugh. So it's like, they're Americans. They're not going to like it if you use the word rule and obey and submit. If that language shows up, people are going to go, hmm. Number two, I thought, because they're going to be very sensitive to the danger of abusive and domineering leaders in the church and outside of it. And I, I thought, okay, why are they going to be so sensitive to that? Well, because they've maybe personally experienced that sort of thing. They've, they've had bad leaders who have been domineering. And so every time they hear the word, me either. <laughs> they didn't. So should I say it again? <laughs> Sorry. Um, they've personally experienced domineering leadership. They've had leaders who have been oppressive. And so when they hear the word rule or govern, they go, they think of that and they don't like it. Or because they live in a mass media environment in which such leadership abuses are widely publicized. And so everybody's aware of what happens everywhere. Okay, so that, that makes sense. So we're Americans, that's one reason. Uh, two, they're very sensitive to the danger of abuse. And why are they sensitive to danger of abuse? Because they've personally experienced or they've heard about it in the news. And so they're not going to like if I use that word. That's what I thought. And so then I started thinking, okay, well, I'm understanding now. I realized that there was a danger in not saying it then. Because, like, of course you're aware of leadership abuses around the country. Like, scandal sells. Like, there are headlines. There are no, put it this way. There are no headlines for fidelity. Okay? Prominent pastor abuses his authority, gets clicks. Local pastor preaches 28th faithful sermon of the year, does not get clicks. Okay? Evangelical leader has inappropriate relationship with his assistant. Clicks. Pastor's family enjoys third Friday family fun night of the month. No clicks. So, Scandal sells. So you're going to be aware of all the failures and none, and so it's going to give an outsized weight in your mind to all of the unfaithfulness and ignore all of the faithfulness that's around you. So our sensitivity to abusive leadership is driven in part by the reality of it, and it's horrible when it's there, but also the publicity of it in a mass media environment driven by clicks and scandal. And so my awareness intuitively, like my, my gut knew that was true before my mind did, and so I don't want to talk about rule and obey. And so then I started 
pressing in, thought I had some understanding of my reluctance, and I thought I saw it more clearly and therefore saw the needs and temptations of my people better. And so then what did I do? Here's what I did. I said, I need to say it. I need to use that word. Like it was really important at that point, having understood where it was coming from, it was like, I, what I didn't want to do was go, I'm going to cater and coddle the sensitivities of my people. That would not be shepherding the flock of God. The words rule and govern needed to be in the sermon because they're in the Bible. And elders are called to shepherd the flock of God, not coddle the sensitivities of the flock of God. At the same time, because some of that sensitivity was driven by the real danger of overbearing and abusive leadership, I think I need to use a bunch of different terms so that people don't get confused. So I'll use govern and rule, yes, but I'll also use lead and feed and guide and all of these other words that I used earlier. And so that way people don't misunderstand. And it's going to be important for me to clarify the boundaries of the church authority, of all authority. It's got to be in its appropriate sphere under the chief shepherd, and I'm not the chief shepherd, and there's a plurality of leaders, there's a team, so that there's checks and balances. And it's clear, it's important for me in this sermon to name the danger of domineering leadership so that my people knew that I knew that it's a problem and that I don't want to do it. So I want to pastor to practice what I preach. And here was the amazing thing. Here's just, why did I share that little story with you when I didn't have that problem in preparing this time? I wouldn't worry about it at all because I'm leaving. And so it's Daniel's problem. Um, here's the amazing thing, though. Here's why I share the story. In order to do all of that, all I had to do was preach what was in the Bible. I just had to say what was there. I didn't have to go searching around for some other source of information in order to faithfully preach what God wanted me to preach. I just had to go to the next verse. And when you're done with that one, move on to the next one. When you run out of stuff to say, move to the next verse. It's all there. The boundaries, the plurality, the dangers, all I had to do was stay close to the text and unpack what God has said willingly, eagerly, and as an example for my people. So then, conclusion. Christ is the chief shepherd. He's the overseer of our souls. He rules his church and governs his church and guards his church and guides his church. He leads us and he feeds us and he feeds us with his word until he returns. And that's the thing that motivates everything in the book of 1 Peter. Set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Christ, chapter 1. Rejoice as you share Christ's suffering so you can rejoice when his glory is revealed, chapter 4.13. The chief shepherd will give the unfading crown of glory to elders who shepherd well, here in this passage. Pastoral ministry, endurance and trials, and the Christian life as a whole, all of these are animated by the living hope rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's seek his face together. Father, grateful for these brothers and sisters. I'm grateful for this church, which has pastors who are aiming to shepherd well. And I pray, oh God, that you would help to keep them faithful, that they would do so eagerly and willingly and as an example, and not with domineering, not for shameful game, and not out of drudgery and duty. But there would be an eagerness in the shepherding of the pastors here. And then there would be a willing and glad-hearted submission to that leadership on the part of these people. That is a precious and beautiful thing. It is remarkably out of step with the world around us. And it commends Jesus 
to the world. So make it so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.